Inomine Cinema e TV e Spiritus Streaming. Amen. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Hollywood Confessional. Once again, I'm J.R. Zamora Thal. And I'm Megan Dane. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. It's about damn time. But if you're one of our longtime listeners, you might notice that today's confession is, well, different than our usual, to say the least. Right. When we started this podcast, we basically meant it to be a place where people who had experienced some kind of crazy or toxic behavior in the industry could talk about that experience without fear of ramifications. This time, though, the confessor is speaking about how their own actions were harmful, both to themselves and to others. Right. This is one of our heaviest episodes so far. And so we want to provide an upfront trigger warning. This confession contains detailed descriptions of illegal drug use. If that could potentially be troubling for you, you may want to skip this one. But I want to add, we don't think the details are gratuitous. The confessor chose to share them as an integral part of their story, which ultimately is a story of persistence and redemption. It's called Coming Clean. Boy, oh boy. You ready? Let's step into the confessional booth. Forgive me, Father, for... Jesus, where do I start? How about where it all began? It was at my first cast party and that I discovered drinking and drugs. At age 19, I went to New York to go to school for acting, and I started drinking and drugging every day, all day, all the time. If I'm not loaded, I'm recovering or about to get loaded. It was just pot and booze back home, but when I went to New York, it was cocaine. My habit became bigger and more constant all through that decade. One time I went to a party. I took a quaalude, and I took a couple lines of cocaine, and I emptied a pint of something, and I went. This is how I would go to a party. And I'm at the party, we're in the kitchen in a New York apartment, and it's crowded. People are smoking, there's a joint going around, and I'm by the sink, by the coffee maker. And somebody goes into their pocket and pulls out a handful of like five or six pills. There's a Black Beauty, a couple of red and green ones, and the guy goes, Oh my god, I didn't even know I had these in here. And I take all six of them, and I eat them. Oh, holy shit. And the girls are all like, Oh my god. And the guy said, Damn, dude, I don't even know what those were. And I go, I guess we'll find out. Well, about 15 minutes later, I'm not feeling good. And I think I'm going to throw up, but I'm at this party. And I'm by the sink, so rather than try to go to the bathroom, there's a coffee maker. I look in the cupboard, and there's a filter, so I grab a coffee filter, I lean over the sink, and I throw up into the coffee filter. Then I squeeze it. Open up the filter, and there are the pills. And I take the pills, and I take a beer, and I swallow them again. Jesus. I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to lose these. They're still good. They aren't digested. I'm not going to throw them away. They're good. Let's find out what they are. Can I ask, what was the sensation you were seeking? It actually took me getting sober to learn the answer to that. And at that point in my life, I was a long way from getting sober. After a year in New York, I quit school. 
So I'm waiting tables, driving a delivery truck, uh, just kind of making ends meet. I'm making the rounds and trying to find an agent. And I had a friend named who had done a film and had a manager named And he took me to him one day and introduced me. And this guy who didn't know me from Adam said, Well, you need somebody on this side of the desk who's going to fight for you. I think you're going to work, so I'd love to work with you. I said, okay. Over the next few years, I did about 250 commercials. I'd go out for four calls on Monday. Tuesday and Wednesday are three or four of those are callbacks. By Friday, I'd book two or three of those. And it went on like that for about three years. So financially, I was doing pretty good. Here's where my addictions took me. I would get called by my manager. Hey, man, you got a couple of checks here. And I would go in. There would be one check for, say, 6800 and another check for 1200 Most people would put the 68 in their bank account, cash the 1200 No. <laughs> I'd cash the 68 and deposit the twelve and think I'm doing well. Like that's responsible. And then I'd spend the 6800 and buy everybody cocaine. I always had three or four grams on me. I'd go into a party, dump out three or four grams and say, have at it. Everybody loved me, but I never saw where it was taking me. When I was booking commercials all the time, you'd go into a waiting room and there'd be like 20 actors and I'd come in. Three or four people would get up and leave. Or they would go, what fucking mood is he in today? I loved that. I loved and embraced the fact that people were all ill at ease around me. I thought that was my edge. I remember one time in acting class, you know, we had no furniture. You had uh, black cubes with handles in them that would use as a table or a chair or something. And I'm up on stage doing a scene with somebody and there were two girls that were in the mid audience. They were talking about a picnic they had in Central Park. I know, it was so hot, I couldn't believe it. I took off my top. They're talking like this. So in the middle of the scene, without skipping a beach, I reached down and I grabbed the cube and I threw it. Oh, holy shit. This cube fell into the seats and laid there. And everybody went, oh my god. And I went to the top of the bottom of the stage and I said, we're fucking working up here. When you're up here, I respect you. When I'm up here, I expect the same respect. I look back on that now and I go, Jesus, I could have hurt somebody. I could have hurt those girls. That's the kind of ego I had. And unfortunately, I had teachers and other students that somehow respected and fed that. And New York fed that. And I fed it with drugs and alcohol. So, I carried that around with me all through New York. Until about the movie had just come out. They were going to make it into a TV series. They were looking for somebody to play the lead. I'd met with a casting director, and I'd been through four or five meetings. I'd gotten to the point where it was down to, um, I think, three of us. And we're going to meet with who was the head of nighttime programming at the network. Wow, that's a really big deal. I was going to meet him at the network's casting headquarters, which was on, like, on the 27th floor or whatever. We were going to read through those scenes. And my manager was going, this is it. This is a biggie. This would be you having a series. I was like, okay. Now, 
This is how I walked into the building. First of all, I was high. I wouldn't have been able to do the audition otherwise. Second, most people would come in in a sport coat and maybe some nice slacks. No. I go in wearing ripped jeans and a white t-shirt because I'm James Dean. So I go up to the office. The secretary says, Oh yeah, Mr. B*** is uh, running a little bit late, but he wanted you to go in and uh, he'll come in. I said, okay. So I go into his big, beautiful office and in my bag I have a pint of vodka. And I empty that and I'm looking at my sides. And I get down on the floor and I'm stretching against the wall. And the guy comes in and he looks at the chair in front of his desk, which is where you think most people would be. And then he looks down at the floor and says, Oh, hi. Hey, man. Listen, before we start, can I check my messages real quick? Uh, yeah, sure. I turned his phone around, sit on his desk, and I said, Can I get a piece of paper and a pen? I used his phone to check my messages. Wow. Old school. Did you actually need to check your messages in that moment? No. It's nervousness and uh, my ego. I was trying to wrest control of the room. Now I look back at it and I go, Do you hear what you're just saying? He probably wanted me to do well. You know, He probably wanted me to win, but I didn't trust that. So I thought, I'm going to make the room mine. I spread my shit out on the floor, you know, like a dog pissing on somebody new. I own the room, okay? Wow. So I'm writing down numbers, and he goes around to his desk and sits in his chair, and he's watching this. Then I hang up, put the piece of paper in my back pocket, then I sit down in the chair across from him, and he goes, Well, you want to do the scenes? And I said, Yeah, sure, let's do the scenes. And I move the furniture around. Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) And I do the scene. And he goes, Fantastic. Great. Anything else? No, no, that was good. Uh, Very good. You certainly are very interesting. Definitely code for don't call us, we'll call you. So I shake his hand and I leave. I walked over to my manager's apartment, which was like two blocks away. Took me five, ten minutes. I go up to his door and I knock on the door and he opens up and says, What the fuck is wrong with you? What are you talking about? I just got off the phone with He wanted to know what was wrong with you. He thought you were insane. What did you do? I did the scenes. What else? I think I checked my messages. You what? So? What happened? What did he say? I lied for you. I said your mother is ill. That's why you're acting like that. Okay, so what did he say? He said, oh, that explains it. But this is not going to go any further. I shot myself in the foot. I had an opportunity to maybe have a series But I lost my chance. What happens is, as an addict, you blame everybody but yourself. I was like, what the fuck is his problem? What are they looking for? I was an edgy guy. I was interesting. He said I was interesting. It took me 20 years after that to to realize interesting doesn't mean somebody wants to spend 18 hours on a set with you. I thought talent was everything. I'd heard stories of people that were assholes and acted out, but people said, well... All right, as long as he shows up on set and uh, what, what, whatever's in the camera looks good. So I thought, okay, I'm not the first guy to have issues with drugs or alcohol. Come on. 
Let's figure it out. I'm worth it. Within a few years after that, I had nothing. I blew all the money. I didn't have anything left, so I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go to L.A. <sighs> By this time, I'm full on cocaine every day, drinking and grass and whatever I have. I'm out here with my friend we would go on four or five day benders. We would do cocaine, we'd go through six or seven grams and a fifth of vodka and some grass. And it was all on my dime. He wasn't working, but he was my drug partner. We had this brainstorm once after being up for three days straight. It's uh, four o'clock in the morning and I go, the stuff on the table is the last of it. We should go and get some more. So we piled into my car and we go, not thinking that there's anything wrong at 4.30 in the morning. Not a lot of people out at that hour. So we drive down the street, the side street, and we pull into this driveway. My friend is smoking. He has an open fifth of vodka in his lap. And he's smoking a cigarette. I pull in, and this kid comes over to the window like, Yeah, what do you need, man? And I go, Hold on. I'm getting the money from my friend. All of a sudden, <sighs> two cop cars bound the curb with their lights on, their sirens on. Get out of the car! My God, just fucked up my whole life. Now the kid who had been leaning on my door dumped all the stuff in my lap and ran. So there's 26 grams in my lap and I'm not moving. They catch him and they catch me. They come out and they handcuff me and they take me to jail in downtown LA. I get booked and I'm looking at one to three for distribution. This is Thursday morning. Monday is a holiday. So it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, I get bailed out on Tuesday. So I was in there five days. Worst five days of my life. The only way to explain how I made it out of all of this alive is I had angels looking out for me. My manager was one of them. When I got arrested, he went around his apartment building in New York collecting money. He sent money to my friend in LA. My friend bailed me out. And my manager got me a lawyer. I met with a guy and he said, Here's what we're going to do. They can't pin the 26 grams on you. The kid threw them in your lap. So we're going to cop to the two grams that you had on you and we're going to say you're an addict. You're going to get into recovery. Then I'm going to call in some favors and we'll see what we can do. I was scheduled to go to court at 9 o'clock on a Monday. I showed up at 8.50 and I'm sitting there and somebody goes, Did you check in? I said, No. And he goes, You, you got to check in so they know you're here. So I go up to the bailiff who's in front of the courtroom. I give him my name and he looks down at one page, flips it over, goes down a second page, flips that up. Now people behind me are going, hey, what's the holdup? And I'm like, I I don't know. They can't find my name. So I lean into him and I go, cocaine possession. And he goes, I got it. I got it. All the charges have been dropped. You're free to go. What? The charges have been dropped. You're free to go. I'd go if I were you. (sighs) (laughs) I remember going out into the hall and I looked and I saw people all around me. I took about three steps, stopped and looked up in the hallway, said, you totally fucking just gave me that one. I don't know whether I was talking to God, my parents or... 
who I was talking to, but I said out loud, you totally just gave me that. Why? It was going to be a while before I figured it out, because not long after that, I was introduced to crack cocaine. I first tried crack on January 3rd of From that point on, I lost any semblance that I had of a life. All that year, I'm looking for crack, smoking crack, doing crack every day, all day. In October or November, I get cast in a play. So I was using all day, showing up at the theater at 10 minutes to 8. Everybody going, where is he? I'm coming in and going, what? I do the play. We were killing. At 10.10, the curtain goes down. At 10.15, I'm in my car. I go back to my apartment. I turn on the TV and I put a rock in a pipe. And I'm hitting crack the rest of the night and all the next day. That was my life. Till one night, I went home. Double deadbolt of the lock, turn on the TV, turned it way up. I went and opened the freezer and took a fifth of vodka out from my freezer. I opened a 16 ounce beer. I went into the bathroom, closed the little vent that opened into the courtyard so people wouldn't hear the lighter. I turned on the shower to cover it and then I opened the closet, pushed the clothes aside, put the beer and vodka down. I got my three rocks, sat on the floor, took a rock and put it in the pipe. And when I went to go and light the pipe, everything stopped. It was like I was seeing a snapshot of that moment. I was 35 years old, sitting in my closet with the clothes spread and me on the carpet, hiding from life. Every other time I'd been excited about doing this. I I couldn't wait to light it, but that night I went, what am I doing? What am I doing? Not long after this, my manager said to me, I think I found a place for you to go, a hospital. And I said, okay. So I went to a hospital, and after three days, the nurse took me out and said my insurance wasn't going to cover me as an inpatient. So I could only be there from 9 to 5, and then I would be sent home each day. And I went, oh, shit. Because I knew what I was going to do at home. So I would be there from 9 to 5, bullshitting, acting. I'm holding hands in therapy, and I'm going, you are so getting this, Gary. Oh, Carol. Then the nurse would pull me into her office. I got the results from your UA. It came back dirty. Really? For what? Cocaine. Is there anything you want to tell me? No. So you're not using? No. Inside, as an actor, I'm thinking, just look right at her. You're more convincing if you look right at her. Own it. No. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, go back to the group. So I did. Inside, I was crying out for help. Please, somebody, call me on my bullshit. But nobody did. At the end of the four weeks, everybody gets a chip for successfully completing the program. I notice people that have changed in four weeks. They have this clear-eyed energy. But I'm the same guy. A few weeks after I get out, I'm driving around one day. And I find myself in front of the hospital again. And for some reason, this is how the universe works. I say, huh, look where I am. Let me go in and say hi to the nurse. What can I do for you? I can't stop using. Do you know why? Because I'm an addict. That's right. And I begin to cry. And I look down and I say, can you help me? She says... 
I can now. After that, she said, come with me. And she took me to a place around the corner, a residential treatment facility. We went into the back room and there was an office. The nurse introduced me to a woman there. Started talking about letting me in. And I look at them and go, hold it, hold it. I can't come in. I'm in a hit play. And they look at me like I'm insane. But they say, well, when does the play close? And I said, January 17th. She said, okay, let me check. And the nurse and I went out and had a cup of coffee. And when we came back, she was hanging up the phone. And I'll never forget. She looked at me and said, I've been here nine years and they've never done this. On Sunday, January 17th, we have three people leaving. You have a bed on Monday, January 18th at 9 a.m. Someone wants you to get this. So I walked out. I closed the glass door. I went around the corner and I began to walk down the driveway towards my car. And I stopped dead. And I looked up and I said out loud, It's right here for me to grab. Is that what you're saying? God, whatever, it's right here. All I have to do is grab it. And then I remember all of a sudden, all my senses came back. I heard a radio in somebody's room. Next door, there was a barbecue going on. I smelled barbecue in the street where my car was. There were kids playing. They were laughing and giggling and screaming at each other. It was 84, 85 degrees and it was sunny. And I remember feeling this incredible sense of not only being aware of all of that now, but this incredible sense of calm. I didn't know it at the moment, but it was exactly what I had been searching for all this time. When I would be loaded, I'd be at a party and everybody would go, Oh, I love him. He has such a great personality. You know, I could talk to girls. I was confident. I would use drugs and alcohol and the fact that I was an actor to kind of get me to even talk to somebody because I was not comfortable in my own skin. What I was looking for, ostensibly, was to fit in and to have fun, have an edge as an actor. But really, what I was chasing was the feeling of being comfortable inside myself because I didn't think I was enough. But that day, as I walked away from the hospital, I was calm because I stopped fighting. I was comfortable in my skin. So I was able to smell the barbecue and hear the radio and the kids and feel the heat and be alive. I was aware of all of that. And I went, oh, fuck. Fuck. Do you want it? It's here. You can do this. You don't even know what it's going to require you to get sober. But this is a glimpse of what it feels like when you get there. And I went, yeah, I want that. On Sunday, January 17th, the play closed. And on Monday, January 18th, I went in. And from that day until now, I haven't had a drink or a smoke. I haven't had a pill. I haven't had a line. I haven't had anything. That is amazing to me. For a while, I was worried about losing my edge as an actor. I liked that people were uncomfortable around me. One day, I went up to a sponsor and explained this to him, and he chuckled. And he said very calmly, Set me straight. When did you start using? When I was 15. And now you're 35, right? Well, in some ways, you're about 17. 
You stop maturing. You don't know who you are. That's who you're going to learn how to reveal. That's your edge. You're you. I've never met another one. So be that. Oh, man. What a what a profound moment. The best compliment I ever get is whenever anybody hears these stories and they go, I can't believe that was you. You seem like you're such a positive, nice guy. And I go, well, thank you. That means a lot. But I can't ever buy into that. I have to remember that. That guy that threw cubes into those seats, that guy is still in there. The universe presented me with an opportunity. If I had said no to that, I don't even know if I'd be alive. But I had angels all the way through. It could have gone any number of ways. Somebody was looking out for me. I think there are often people looking out for us in our dark moments. Even if we don't feel it, or maybe we think, "Ah, nobody cares about me, nobody gets what I'm going through. But I still believe those people are out there. I hope they can bring everyone the clarity and peace you found at last. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. Go create in peace. Damn. Moment of silence. I'm just so grateful that story ended on a high note. It could have gone a totally different direction, and so many times it does. Yeah, I can't imagine how much personal strength it took to make that journey. The confessor, by the way, has been sober for decades now. I wanted to uh, let you guys know that. They wanted to share it and also to highlight the fact that they had all these people in their corner hoping for them to bounce back. We all need people who can help us with second, third, even tenth chances. But unfortunately, not everybody has that support system. Yeah, it's tough. Drugs, alcohol, other vices, they're so prevalent in the entertainment industry. You really have to be careful. Um, I mean, like this guy said that he got into it in uh, at his first cast party when he was like a teenager. But if you do get caught up, even if you don't have a manager who's going to collect your bail money, which is perhaps the second most astonishing thing about this story, there are resources that can help you turn things around. Exactly. So for our shout out today, we want to highlight the Entertainment Community Fund. This is a nonprofit organization that works with people in the entertainment industry to help create individual plans for sobriety, abstinence, or moderation. They also work with employers, managers, and agents to help address substance abuse issues in the workplace. So uh, check out entertainmentcommunity.org for more info on how you could qualify for their services. You can get financial assistance if you need it. Or uh, check it out if maybe you just want to donate or volunteer. Like, let's all take some real steps towards making Hollywood a happier place. And that's all for this week's episode of Hollywood Confessional. Again, if you have a Hollywood story or secret to share, or you just want to be a friend of the podcast, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Our handle is at FessUpHollywood. Yeah, and uh, while you're at it, five-star reviews ain't gonna hurt. Uh, Any kind of review of the show would be so, so helpful in helping us raise awareness and um, helping us like hone our craft because we want to do what you guys love. And be sure to come back in two weeks. We've got a crazy story about what happens behind the scenes at one of America's most prestigious film festivals. When you win. See you then.
The Hollywood Confessional is produced by Megan Dane and J.R. Zamorathal. Our cast for this episode. John Lorenz. Uzo Chijoke. Amy Baclini. Claire Gruber. Austin Windham. Special effects provided by Zapsplat and Pixabay. Hollywood Confessional is a Ninth Way Media production. Follow us on socials at Fess Up Hollywood. 